You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. The French Revolution set Europe ablaze. It was an age of enlightenment and progress, but also of tyranny and oppression. It was an age of glory and an age of tragedy. One man stood above it all. This was the Age of Napoleon. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast. Join me as I examine the life and times of one of the most fascinating and enigmatic characters in modern history. Look for the Age of Napoleon wherever you find your podcasts. Hey everyone, welcome to episode 369 of our Civil War podcast. My name is Rich. And I'm Tracy. Hello y'all. Thanks for tuning into the podcast. As some of you know, the last time we were at Gettysburg, back pre-COVID, we met up with a great group of you listeners at the Virginia Monument on Seminary Ridge, and we all walked Pickett's Charge, following one of the paths the Park Service maintains well, that they keep mowed through the fields, and we ended up over at the angle on Cemetery Ridge. Walking Pickett's Charge is a very powerful experience that never fails to move us, and that particular day it was even more so because we got to do it with some of you. We don't mind telling you that the next time we get back to Gettysburg, we'd love to do that again. If you visit Gettysburg today and stand at the Virginia Monument, then you know it's hard not to look eastward into the open fields, over toward the copse of trees and the angle, and not imagine what it must have been like for those Confederate soldiers on the afternoon of July 3rd, 1863, to step out of the trees to the right and left of where you're standing and dress ranks and then begin that fateful march toward the main federal battle line over on Cemetery Ridge. Or if you're standing over on Cemetery Ridge at the Stone Wall, looking westward toward Seminary Ridge, it's hard not to imagine what it was like for those federal soldiers positioned there that day to see thousands upon thousands of rebel soldiers over across the way step into view, form up, and with dozens of battle flags waving in the sunlight, see them start to march across the rolling terrain right toward you. To stand there today at either of those spots and picture in your mind's eye what happened there in July 1863 is a powerful experience, not only because being there in person makes it all seem so real, but also because of the legendary status that Pickett's Charge holds in our national memory even today, over 155 years after the Battle of Gettysburg. Pickett's Charge is arguably one of the best-known military actions of all American history, ranking right up there with Bunker Hill, the Alamo, Custer's Last Stand, and D-Day. The creation of the charge's legendary status began immediately after the attack failed. 
On July 4th, Brigadier General Johnston Pettigrew, who led the other full division in the assault, confided to a trusted subordinate that, quote, Had we succeeded the evening before, no doubt our army would have been on the road to Washington, and perhaps negotiations for peace would then be afoot. Soon after the end of the war, the legend picked up steam. Colonel Walter Harrison, a former member of Pickett's staff, visited Gettysburg and had a long discussion with John Batchelder, who was the self-appointed historian of the battle. During their discussion, Batchelder recalled that Harrison, quote, Explain to me what an important feature that copse of trees was at the time of the battle, and it, how it had been a landmark towards which Longstreet's assault of July 3, 1863, had been directed. Batchelder was so impressed by this insight that he blurted, Why, Colonel, as the Battle of Gettysburg was the crowning event of this campaign, this copse of trees must have been the high watermark of the rebellion. Batchelder was a tireless promoter of his view that Gettysburg was the decisive battle of the Civil War, and he convinced many people that the big Confederate attack aimed at the center of the federal line on July 3rd had more than just an immediate tactical impact. Soon the legend grew that the assault's failure prevented the Confederacy from winning the war and gaining its independence. Even Lieutenant General James Longstreet, who had been charged by General Robert E. Lee with the responsibility of organizing the attack, only to become the chief scapegoat for its failure, began to accept the legendary view of the matter. Long after the war, Longstreet would write, quote, Pickett's charge was the crowning point of Gettysburg and Gettysburg of the war. But it was Captain Benjamin Farenholt of the 53rd Virginia who penned what is perhaps the ultimate statement of faith that the failed attack was the turning point of the war. He wrote, quote, And when the sun went down on the shattered and broken columns of Pickett's division in the final charge on Cemetery Hill at Gettysburg on the 3rd of July, 63, the Southern Cross and all we fought for was as decisively lost as was the crown of Napoleon when the Imperial Guards bearing the Eagles of France went down in the magnificent charge of Ney at Waterloo. The idea that the failed attack was the turning point of the war was started by veterans of the conflict and soon became accepted as truth among their descendants. The idea that Pickett's charge was not only the high watermark of the Confederacy, but the pivot point of the Civil War grew with each passing generation. William Faulkner, in a novel published in 1948, famously wrote about the moment before the start of the Confederate attack and the possibilities, the potential, that moment held for the Confederate cause. Quote, For every Southern boy 14 years old, not once, but whenever he wants it, there is the instant when it's still not yet two o'clock on that July afternoon in 1863. The brigades are in position behind the rail fence, the guns are laid and ready in the woods, and the furled flags are already loosened to break out. And Pickett himself, with his long, oiled ringlets, and his hat in one hand probably, and his sword in the other, looking up the hill, waiting for Longstreet to give the word. And it's all in the balance, 
It hasn't happened yet. It hasn't even begun yet. It not only hasn't begun yet, but there is still time for it not to begin against that position and those circumstances. More than one person has pointed out that passage is about Faulkner himself. Because in that scene, you clearly sense a man who had grown up in a time when he could actually talk to Confederate veterans. And as a Southerner growing up in that culture, the point of view Faulkner writes about in that passage would have been the view of so many people of his generation. Generations of Americans, especially those living south of the Mason-Dixon line, have loved to ponder what might have happened if Pickett's charge had broken through the federal line on the afternoon of July 3rd and the attacking rebels had surged across the crest of Cemetery Ridge. In their view, the capture of Washington and a negotiated end to the war resulting in an independent confederacy was likely. But is this supposition justified? Was Pickett's charge the pivot point of the war, beyond which the United States would either remain united and slavery eliminated, or would dissolve into two separate and eternally hostile nations? To answer such questions, we have to try to view Pickett's charge as a military operation, rather than a cultural artifact loaded down with a century and a half of lost cause baggage. Admittedly, this isn't easy, because the charge has assumed such legendary proportions, has been encrusted with so much myth, that it takes a determined effort to dig down through that and reveal the truth of Pickett's charge as a military operation. However, when we take the time and effort to do that, what we find is that, as professor and Civil War scholar Earl Hess has said, Quote, the charge was a complex event, and there are several layers to its tactical and strategic significance. On different levels, it had the possibility of succeeding and was doomed to failure at one and the same time. The attack that came to be known as Pickett's Charge was conceived in the midst of controversy and disagreement between Confederate Army Commander Robert E. Lee and his principal subordinate, his old war horse, James Longstreet. In fact, if Longstreet had had his way, the attack never would have taken place. Old Pete had seen two of his divisions, McClaws and Hood's, make one of the most spectacular assaults of the war on the late afternoon and evening of July 2nd against the left end of the federal position at Gettysburg. Each division lost about one-third of its men in that assault, and while they came close to winning something big, their accomplishments fell far short of being decisive. Also in July 2nd, the rebel troops of Dick Yule's command had attacked the right side of the federal line at both Culp's Hill and Cemetery Hill and won even less important gains. When all was said and done, by the end of the fighting on the second day of the battle, the Yankees had held firm on both flanks and defeated the Confederate attacks on the right and left ends of their Fishhook line of defense. 
Longstreet thought the results of the fighting on July 2nd demonstrated the futility of attacking the Yankees frontally in their strong defensive positions outside Gettysburg. Old Pete didn't bother to visit Lee's headquarters that night, but merely submitted a report. Lee, for his part, just sent a brief message to Longstreet, saying that he wanted the offensive continued the next morning. Lee later claimed that for the third day of the battle, his, quote, general plan was unchanged, end quote, which may help explain why on the night of July 2nd, he didn't bother to bring together his senior officers in order to clarify his intentions for the next day. If Lee's plan for July 3rd was basically unchanged, that implies he wanted Longstreet and Ewell to make another set of attacks on the right and left ends of the federal lines. However, instead of another assault made directly against the enemy lines to his front, James Longstreet had something else in mind. He sent out scouts to explore the possibility of maneuvering around Little Round Top and Big Round Top. Longstreet wanted to find a way to turn the enemy left entirely. As he later put it, he was planning to, quote, pass around the hill occupied by the enemy on his left and to gain it by flank and reverse attack. This would have been a slow process probably, but I think not very difficult. In planning to make this flanking movement, which by the way was not without its problems, but in planning this flanking movement, Longstreet, who was used to Lee's leadership style, probably assumed he had enough freedom to conduct the offensive in his sector in the best way he thought possible. But about 4.30 a.m. on the morning of July 3rd, just as dawn was breaking, Lee rode up to Longstreet's headquarters and discovered Old Pete's plans, and Robert E. Lee was not happy about them. Lee immediately ordered Longstreet to cancel his planned flanking movement. Robert E. Lee must have surely been frustrated to discover that his plans for the third day of the battle had already been derailed. You see, he believed that his army had come within a hair's breadth of victory on July 2nd, and all that was needed to succeed on July 3rd was better coordination between the attacks on each end of the enemy's line. Lee had obviously expected that would happen, when both Ewell and Longstreet attacked the right and left ends of the federal line more or less simultaneously early on the morning of the 3rd. But, but instead, here was Longstreet at daybreak, not even having made any preparations to make another direct assault on the enemy to his front. As we've already pointed out previously, it wasn't Lee's leadership style at Gettysburg to issue specific and detailed orders to his subordinate commanders. Here, that style of leadership certainly didn't work to his advantage. For whatever reason, Lee didn't confer with Longstreet on the evening of July 2nd. Instead, he simply issued orders to renew the attack early on July 3rd, but perhaps more specific instructions should have been issued if Lee expected Longstreet to assault the enemy directly to his front at the earliest possible hour on the morning of the 3rd. Well, be that as it may, with the sound of intensive cannon fire from Yule's sector already reaching his ears, Robert E. Lee, here with Longstreet, would have to try to make lemonade out of lemons, so to speak. 
and so he canceled Longstreet's plan to maneuver around the Round Tops, and instead Lee began to search for an alternative, for a plan B here on this part of the battlefield. Because even if Longstreet started, right now, to get things ready to strike the enemy directly to his front, by the time that actually happened, all Lee would have on July 3rd would be yet another set of uncoordinated attacks on each end of the enemy lines, and that strategy had already failed on July 2nd. So now, forced by circumstances to adapt and improvise, Lee decided that Longstreet would instead strike the Federal Center, which had only been partially tested by the Confederates on the 2nd. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, everyone. My name is Wesley Livesey from the History of the Second World War podcast. My podcast is a mostly chronological retelling of the Second World War, and I hope you will join me on a journey through the most cataclysmic conflict in human history as we try to answer the questions of not just what and where, but how and why. Join me on a journey not just through the famous campaigns, battles, and events, but also on a trip around the globe as we broaden the scope of Second World War history beyond the well-known battlefields of Europe and the Pacific. During weekly episodes, I seek to provide new insight for longtime students of the war, while also being a great jumping-on point for anyone seeking a deeper understanding of the Second World War. This podcast has made it to the invasion of Poland in 1939, and start listening now to find out how the world would find itself embroiled in its second worldwide conflict in just 20 years. You can find History of the Second World War on all major podcast platforms, or at History of the Second World War. In deciding that Longstreet would now attack the center of the enemy line, there along Cemetery Ridge, Robert E. Lee said that McClaw's division and Hood's division, now led by Evander Law in place of the wounded Hood, would be shifted left to strike the Federals, while Longstreet's 3rd Division, comprised of the fresh troops of George Pickett, who were just arriving on the battlefield, was to act as support for McClaw's and Law. At the same time, Ewell was to delay the renewal of his attack on the Federal right. A one-two punch on July 3rd by Longstreet and Ewell is pretty much what Lee had intended all along and had expected to start at daybreak, with the only real change now being that it would all happen later, not at dawn, and Longstreet's men would attack the Federal's center instead of their left. 
Once Robert E. Lee voiced his intentions, there then ensued a classic battle of wills between the Confederate Army commander and his second-in-command, since Longstreet was apparently quite vocal in stating his opposition to the proposed attack. Old Pete pointed out to Lee that not only had the divisions of McClaws and Law suffered heavy casualties the previous day, but to shift them to the left today in order to strike the enemy's center would uncover the right end of the Confederate line and give the Federals in that sector a golden opportunity to advance their forces and attack the rebels on that flank. Longstreet instead suggested, once again, that the whole army disengage at Gettysburg, swing entirely around the enemy left, march so as to get between the Yankees and Washington, find a good defensive position, and wait for the enemy to attack them. No doubt with visions of Fredericksburg dancing in his head, Longstreet pointed out that with the advantage of good defensive ground, the Confederates could severely punish any Federal attack. But Lee had already heard this from Longstreet, and he was no more inclined to take up Longstreet's suggestion now than he had been then. Folks, never forget that Robert E. Lee had come up to Pennsylvania seeking to fight a decisive battle with the enemy. A battle had started at Gettysburg on July 1st, and Lee wanted to settle it here. That mindset shaped the action the final two days of the Battle of Gettysburg as Lee sought to score a knockout blow against the Army of the Potomac. Lee's desire to settle the matter at Gettysburg meant that Longstreet's suggestion became one of the great might-have-beens of the campaign, to be endlessly debated even down to the present day. But Lee no doubt refused to accept Longstreet's proposal because he knew how perilous it would be to disengage the Army of Northern Virginia in the face of the enemy, maneuver around the Federal's flank, then find a suitable defensive position. All of that would take time, during which the enemy would surely not be idle. Lee also felt that the morale of his army was a consideration, as the men surely wouldn't understand why they were leaving the field at Gettysburg before the battle was decided. In addition, Lee also knew that his logistical support, so far from friendly territory, was tenuous and that his army had limited ammunition available after two days of fighting. It's uncertain whether Lee carefully, objectively considered all these points in those moments on the morning of July 3rd before he once again rejected Longstreet's proposal. At the very least, Lee genuinely viewed the results of July 2nd very differently than Longstreet. To Lee, the limited gains on the 2nd weren't a sign of failure, but were instead a step in the right direction. On July 3rd, Robert E. Lee wanted to take the next step toward victory at Gettysburg. As Rich said a moment ago on July 3rd, Robert E. Lee wanted to take the next step toward victory at Gettysburg. Lee believed the attacks on the 2nd had been disjointed, and so now he wanted better coordination between his subordinates, as well as better artillery support. 
Lee was encouraged by the capture of the peach orchard on July 2nd and believed that ground offered a better spot for the rebel artillery to deploy. Lee hoped that an artillery bombardment of the federal lines from that spot would provide the key to a successful Confederate infantry attack. But circumstances forced Lee to alter his already revised plan for July 3rd. Even as he and Longstreet talked, the sounds of battle that could be heard from the north, from Ewell's sector of the battlefield, increased in intensity. The fighting in that sector had quickly taken on a life of its own, after the Federals had got the jump on the Confederates by opening an artillery barrage against Ewell's position on Culp's Hill at first light. But then the rebel foot soldiers had beat the Federal infantry to the punch by advancing to the attack, resulting in hours of furious combat at Culp's Hill. So all of that meant that Lee's hopes that Ewell's and Longstreet's efforts could be better coordinated on July 3rd had already been dashed. Things also weren't quite working out with Longstreet's troops. That's because while Pickett's division was belatedly coming up to Seminary Ridge, it was not yet in position to join the attack, and neither Law nor McClaws was ready to go in. All of that meant that Lee would once again have to revise the plan for Longstreet's part in the day's attacks. The biggest difference now was that McClaws and Law would stay put, holding down the fort on the Confederate right, while Pickett's division would constitute the core of the attacking force, and Longstreet was also authorized to draw additional troops from A.P. Hill's corps, who were already positioned on Seminary Ridge, opposite the center of the Federal position. Lee guessed that between Pickett's Virginians and Hill's troops, Longstreet would have 15,000 men available for the assault. However, Old Pete still thought any frontal assault against the enemy line was doomed to failure, just like the attacks on the second. And so, as he later wrote, I felt then that it was my duty to express my convictions. According to James Longstreet, he then told Robert E. Lee, quote, General, I have been a soldier all my life. I have been with soldiers engaged in fights by couples, by squads, companies, regiments, divisions, and armies, and should know as well as anyone what soldiers can do. It is my opinion that no 15,000 men ever arrayed for battle can take that position. But by that time, Lee had lost all patience with Longstreet's obstinacy. According to Longstreet, Lee, quote, was impatient of listening and tired of talking. End quote. Even though Lee never left a record of this conversation, there's no reason to doubt the essential truth of Longstreet's version of it. Old Pete was convinced the planned attack would be a useless sacrifice of lives. He tried his best to talk Lee out of it, and he failed. Lee ordered Longstreet to make preparations for the attack. Knowing his lack of confidence in the plan, Knowing that many of the troops would come from a different corps, Longstreet felt that Lee should have appointed someone else to take charge of the operation, but Lee wanted his old warhorse to do it. What that meant for James Longstreet was that now he had to organize a large, complex assault 
that he had no faith in, and he no doubt did so with a heavy heart. That means it's time for this episode's book recommendation. And our recommendation this time is Pickett's Charge, A Microhistory of the Final Attack at Gettysburg, July 3rd, 1863, by George R. Stewart. Based on the number of books and magazine and journal articles we've come across in our reading and research, the two most popular Gettysburg topics are, hands down, Little Round Top, and Pickett's Charge. As far as the latter, the granddaddy of all Pickett's Charge studies is George Stewart's book. It was published in 1959, so it's quite dated now, but still a must-have for your Gettysburg bookshelf, so we offer it up here for your consideration. Don't forget you can find a list of all of our book recommendations if you head over to the podcast website, which is www.civilwarpodcast.org. Also at the website, you can find information on joining the Strawfoot Brigade over on Patreon and supporting the podcast in that way. Just like Kevin S., John M., Rusty G., Constantine N., and William H. all did this past week. Thanks, guys. And thanks to Timothy S. for his donation. And thanks to all of you for listening to this episode of The Civil War, 1861 to 1865, a history podcast. Tracy and I do hope that you'll join us again next week. But until then, take care. Thanks, everyone. Bye.